She's at Work podcast, session two. Hey everyone, Michelle Erickson here, founder of PhDs at Work and your host for this, our PhDs at Work podcast. Welcome back. Ooh, let me, I, I got to tell you, this, this whole podcast business, it's a lot more labor intensive than I think I understood when we got started. There's a, there's a pretty steep learning curve here and uh, it's taking a little longer to get us off the ground. And of course, uh, we're having all kinds of little challenges along the way. So if you were with us in our first podcast, you know, I told you then that it's we're jumping in, we're going to go for it, and there's going to be some bumps along the way. We're still working those bumps out. We still have lots of little outtakes like this. Yeah, there you are. Take two. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> so on today's podcast, we have guest blogger Aviad Elam. Aviad is a social media marketing specialist at Rosetta Stone. He was our guest blogger back in August. And Aviad shares with us... Uh, a little more about what's involved in that marketing process. So we, it's we're going to be talking about more than just whether or not you're on Twitter, but really he's going to share with us some of the insights and background information on what goes into decisions being made around what's posted, when, where, and why. Uh, and, and of course, you know, considerations around dollar spend are discussed. We also talk about the organizational structure of a marketing group, which is exceedingly important if you, in your current role, are looking to work with that group, influence that group in any way, or if you're looking for a new opportunity and you think that social media marketing is a space you might be interested in working in, you'll need to understand what that hierarchy and that organizational structure looks like. So here's the challenge for this podcast. I have an old machine. It's actually not that old, but technology moves quickly. So my little machine had some challenges while we were doing this podcast, and I unfortunately didn't catch it in time. And so what's happening in the background of this podcast is you can hear my little machine working very, very hard. Its fan is spinning, trying to keep it cool. And it's it's really, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's very annoying, especially if you have sensitive ears like me. So my apologies in advance for that. What I've done is I've gone in and I've tried to cut out as much of that as possible. In places where you really had to hear what I was saying to make sense of the conversation, I had to keep that sound in and it's a little jarring. But I think that the value of the content that Aviad shares uh, far surpasses the annoyance that comes with that technical difficulty and uh, you know another great lesson learned so uh, not that I'm going to be getting a new machine anytime soon but uh, I'm definitely going to be looking for ways to try and avoid that fan noise in the future so without further ado I'd like to introduce you to Aviad Elam social media marketing specialist at Rosetta Stone. Hi Aviad welcome to PhDs at Work podcast I'm glad to have you here. Uh, hi, Michelle, and everyone who's listening. Thanks so much for joining us and for writing your Week in the Life last week. It was a real pleasure to read and learn about your work at Rosetta Stone and uh, Week in the Life of a Social Media Marketing Strategist. It was, um, it's a new field for the website for us to explore, and it was really interesting and very popular, I might add. Um, well, happy to hear it. Um, yeah, I enjoyed putting kind of my thoughts to paper and and 
describing what I had done for a week. And actually, I also heard, you know, from a few people who know me pretty well, uh, friends, and even my, uh, my mom, in fact, who was very happy to, (laughs) yeah, was very happy to read this kind of description of what exactly I do at work, because obviously, most people, even if you, you know, you're close to them, and you speak to them, I don't know, every other day or so, it's not like they know exactly what you're doing at work. Um, So this was a nice, uh, was definitely a pleasant experience. I'm so glad to hear it. You know, usually, one of my favorite things to ask people after they've blogged their week in the life is, in fact, you know, what came up for you? What was it like? Was it fun? Was it not fun? And usually, you know, the majority of our guest bloggers are a little farther out from their degree. You're a little closer to your degree. So I'm very curious. For most of them, they tell me, oh, it was very cathartic, or I hadn't really thought about it in these terms, or I hadn't really reflected on my career path in quite this way. I'm really curious to hear what came up for you. What was it like for you? Um, Yeah, so I would say for me, uh, it was more about describing the, the the novel aspect was more about describing kind of what I do day to day and kind of going through and discovering actually kind of how much I do, like all these different responsibilities I have and tasks. Um, the aspect of kind of, um, you know, looking back and, and taking uh, this kind of view of uh, my career path and my break from uh, academia, that was less, I think, novel to me in the sense that maybe because it's not, you know, I graduated in 2011, so it wasn't that long ago. And, and also, honestly, I've kind of mm, digested these things and, and thought about them a lot over the years and spoke I've spoken to a, quite a few people about them as well. So um, I feel like I kind of, uh, I have a good grasp of, you know, what I feel about those things, what I think about that whole, uh, this whole period and my experiences. And so that's something that I've kind of, I would say, I've already processed to to a good extent. That's great. I mean, mm-hmm. we should all be, yeah, there's nothing worse than having these things stick around for you and it's nice that especially in the more recent years there's such a great support community for that transition period and it's nice to hear that it's so much um, I don't want to say easier because I'm not sure that's the right word but um, perhaps less emotionally jarring yeah, I would say it's, um, I don't, yeah, I agree that it's not necessarily easier, but it's out there. People know about it. And if you look and you, you actually don't need to look hard that hard, you know, you can find plenty of people, both like people, you know, perhaps peers of yours who've gone through similar experiences or, or even, you know, strangers, but that nonetheless have a similar, have gone through a similar experience, whether it be, you know, through online forums I've gone to groups of people who've, um, you know, finished their PhDs and left academia and and similar kinds of. So there are definitely, you know, uh, many uh, outlets, I think, for talking and and processing these these experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, tell us, Avi. Well, I'm going to. Is it okay if I call you Avi? Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, Avi. Um, I'm going to make. I'm going to make an assumption that uh, back in 2011, when you uh, were charting a course outside of academia, I'm going to guess you never imagined you would be working in social media. At the time, 
what did you think your career path outside the university might look like? Um, so you're, you're definitely right in that I didn't think I would be working in social media. I don't think I had a very well thought out plan. It's not like I could uh, tell you what, where I thought I would be, you know, 10 years in the future. Um, what, but initial, you know, my initial kind of um, attempts and, and the things I thought I was going to go into but didn't, couldn't see, you know, that far into the future were things like uh, fields like writing, editing, maybe translation. These were um, fields that I had some experience in both before and kind of over the course of my graduate studies. And then, so these were basically the avenues which, you know, which, which I was most familiar with. And so I could tell you maybe, okay, I could see myself hopefully like a year or two after I graduate in, in a job in that kind of field. And then, you know, who knows where that would lead. I don't think at that point I really saw beyond like the next job or two or, you know, year or two or something like that. Yeah, I think that's that's quite common, actually. I think there's, especially for a humanities-based degree, there's a default to the writing, editing, research genre of work. And mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not, I haven't, I think, well, it's my hypothesis that that is because there's a lack of understanding about what other jobs look like and, and what those opportunities might look like and how skills can be applied to them. Um, mm. But... Uh, I don't know, are you, do you enjoy writing? Is that something where you, did you go after that because you loved it or because you thought that was the, going to be the easiest transition point? Um, to a certain extent, both. Um, for me also, I had experience writing uh, non-academic uh, materials. So for example, um, while I was a graduate student, I wrote pieces for um a campus publication, and these were non-academic pieces, obviously. Um, so, um, you know, I had that kind of experience. I also, uh, prior to my uh, to my graduate studies, I had worked in um, translation and editing. And so, there's also, I, you know, that's not exactly writing, but there's a there's a there's a you know a component to it that's related to writing. I I took things that other people had translated and fixed and and kind of proofread and edited. So that whole, you know, let's say that in uh, that field in a broad sense was definitely familiar to me. And as I said before, was something I, I enjoyed. So that was kind of the most natural um, thing for me to look for. Right. You did mention that one of the advantages you thought you had was that you had done other types of work and other types of writing during your graduate studies, whether intentionally planning for, you know, uh, thinking ahead about what opportunities might exist outside of academia and wanting to prepare for those. I, I don't, I didn't get the impression that that was something, that that was the intent of those earlier endeavors. It was more about enjoyment and um, is that true or no? It, uh, yes. It, well, it was about enjoyment, but, and not necessarily, I don't think when I was, yeah, when I was taking these kinds of little, um, they weren't jobs, you know, there was, there were these little uh, things I took upon myself. Um, there, there was also a sense of just, um, doing something non-academic 
regardless of what I would be doing, you know, five years later. Um, it was just that I felt, you know, sometimes, uh, and I think uh, a lot of people feel this while, you know, kind of in the midst of your graduate studies, you feel a little bit overwhelmed about, you know, with writing about the same things again and again, and in the same kind of um, pretty dry academic style. And, and, um, and so sometimes you just want to try to write about something totally different and in a different style and format. So for me, it was a little bit of an, uh, of an outlet of that sort, I would say, in addition to the fact that I, I like writing and, and so kind of, it worked in that way. Yeah. So as you know, um, our, um, members from our network can call in and leave a question for you. And we have someone who actually left a question specifically on this idea of preparing, you know, thinking ahead to something that might work both inside and outside the academy. Um, I'm going to go ahead and play this question for you, and then maybe you can uh, give us your thoughts on how best to approach the problem. You ready? Okay. Yep. Hi, my name is Allison, and I'm working on a PhD in sociolinguistics. And I'm just at that point where I'm trying to figure out exactly what my dissertation topic is going to be. So my question is, do you have any suggestions on how I can develop a topic that will allow me to market myself for both academic jobs and jobs in industry, particularly um, in the tech world and maybe in social media like yourself? Okay, so... Um Actually, my answer is going to be that I don't think you should tailor your dissertation topic to a non-academic career um, for at least two reasons that I can think of. Um, one is that you say, you know, you're interested in uh, potentially in jobs in, in industry or, you know, non-academic jobs. Um, so that's very broad. And I think it would be very difficult for you to know at this point exactly uh, what you're going to be looking for and maybe what you're going to get if you decide to look for a non-academic career. So trying to match, you know, your dissertation topic to what might be potentially a, a, a job opportunity a few years down the line, I don't think that's, that's uh, you know, a, a good, th a desirable thing to do. Um, and second, even I would say more importantly, is that I, in most cases, from my experience, um, non-academic jobs, the you know the hiring managers, they're not that interested in your um, dissertation topic. So, um, in my experience, I've had uh, you know in job interviews, I've had people sometimes ask me you know what my dissertation topic was, and maybe uh, you know try asking me to explain it, but beyond, you know, beyond knowing how to explain it to kind of a lay audience in two or three sentences. And, and so to give, give them a feel of what I had been doing in my research, I, there wasn't any kind of interest beyond that. It wasn't like the dissertation topic was going to lead to uh, a specific job. And I think that's probably true for most um, perhaps even, you know, for most at least, um, uh, non-academic jobs because 
you know, they're interested in uh, non-academic careers. They're interested in your skills and your experience in a non-academic setting. So the fact that you wrote a dissertation on topic X, unless it unless it has a very, very direct and clear connection to the job, which is, I think, uh, from my experience, rare, and it would only be kind of in a very research-heavy setting, perhaps, um, uh, you know, unless under those circumstances, there's not going to be that much interest in your dissertation topic. And so I would focus at this point of your in your studies, uh, finding a dissertation topic that you're interested in, that there's you know enough to write about and research about, that your advisor um, is you know at least uh, okay with, that works with what you've done until now in your in your graduate studies. You know, kind of the the, the questions that every or the the kind of criteria that every person who's doing a uh, is trying to write a dissertation has to take into consideration. I would not, like I said, kind of at the beginning, I would not take uh, n- potential non-academic career uh, opportunities into uh, consideration at this point. Yeah, I would. Um, I would agree with you on the point that dissertations largely become irrelevant once you leave academia. Right. Um, though I would applaud Allison for thinking ahead. Right. She's trying to figure out how to make herself marketable and planning for both scenarios. And that's that's a great thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. So yeah. I would say if you want my advice about what to do, I would say, assuming, you know, you're considering non-academic options, uh, rather than trying to tailor your dissertation topic to these options, I would go out and try to uh, find non-academic experiences that you can develop or you can have. So, you know, like I was giving my own example before about writing non-academic pieces for a campus publication, or if we're talking about um, social media, for example, maybe trying to find a vo- uh, uh, work as a volunteer somewhere where you're handling some um, organization's social media channels. Um, those kinds of experiences, I think, would be much more of interest to uh, potential non-academic uh, jobs. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There's another approach also, and that is trying to build up now uh, additional skill sets that could be construed as complementary to the research and learning and expertise that's developed during the dissertation phase. So, for example, getting a handle around basic programming skills, um, depending on what the depending on what the dissertation topic is, there could be, for example, some really interesting opportunities around artificial intelligence, natural mm-hmm. language processing. Mm-hmm. That's a space that's of interest. That. To your point, the dissertation really is not going to matter, but that, you know, if it's even tangentially related in combination with expertise and background in computers and programming, there's an opportunity there to uh, get an early foot in the door and, and build a career path in that method. Definitely, I, t- I, I agree. And uh, specifically with respect to linguistics, there are many kind of... Um, the skills that are related that can be used in linguistic work and can also be applied to um, non-academic work that's related to linguistics. So, for example, you know, many um, many tech companies 
do hire linguists with some experience in, like you said, natural language processing or computational linguistics. And um, I mean, I actually know a few um, linguists who also, you know, finished their PhD and now work. I know one who works for Oracle. I know a former linguist who actually works for LinkedIn. Um, uh, those are the two that immediately come to mind. I'm sure there are a few others that, oh, uh, one who works for Nuance, which is a um, speech recognition um, company. So yeah, th those companies definitely look for linguists. Um, and what they're interested in, in terms of skills is the kinds of, yeah, the speech processing, natural language processing, um, all those kinds of computational skills that you can you can learn even during your studies in certain, you know, in class, or you can try to develop independently. So Avi, what's next for you? You're working in social media now. Do you have, uh, what's, when you think about the future and what lies ahead, do you have any ideas or now that you're inside a company and you're seeing the way it works or the you thinking there are other parts of the company you'd like to explore? Are you happy in the marketing group? Um, I'm happy in the marketing group. Um, what, yeah, I see myself continuing in, in the marketing and advertising world. Um, it's still relatively new to me, so I definitely still have a lot to learn and, um, I definitely see myself, you know, um, hopefully let's say continuing and, and, you know, into higher ranking positions and uh, getting, you know, it could expand beyond, you know, social media. So social media usually within big companies is just one branch of marketing. So you have, uh, in addition to social media, you have email, you have search, you have display, you have all these other digital channels. And so definitely uh, interested in exploring other digital channels and managing kind of uh, digital media overall. And so, yeah, I definitely, you know, um, hope to continue in down this path and, and see this as a, as a career rather than a, a one-off job. Can you tell us a little more, I think marketing, uh, when people hear about marketing, they imagine just this one enormous engine uh, that they attribute as the source of all ads coming out of uh, a brand or a product. In fact, that's not what marketing is. Marketing has many different components and many different uh, sub-organizations with their own uh, points of interest and expertise. Would you take us through a little bit about uh, how uh, an organization works, a marketing organization works, it's different uh, sub-organizations and how they interact with each other or don't in some cases? Sure. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people might think they know about marketing just because it seems something that's kind of accessible and um, it's not and it doesn't, you know, feel or um, sound like an academic field. So, um, but in fact, you know, it, it is obviously more complicated than what the average person probably thinks. So, um, yeah, basically most marketing departments or divisions or whatever they happen to be called have a few components of them or channels or sub departments. So you'd have things like, um, offline, right? So you'd have like print, 
uh, radio and TV. Um, and those are still around, although, you know, to be honest, they're, I would say, increasingly smaller uh, in terms of their importance and, and budgets and so on. And the actual, the, the increasingly bigger component of uh, marketing is what's called digital, or it's often called DTC as well, the direct-to-customer. Uh, and, and this is what basically I work in. And uh, digital or DTC includes social media, which that's the, you know, the more specific channel I work on, but also things like email. Many companies use email to market and sell their products. Um, search. So that's, uh, you know, Google or Bing search when you do, when you search for a, a phrase or um, a word and then you get ads, Google or Bing or whatever search engine you happen to be using will serve you ads related to the search you put in. So that's a separate, um, also a separate channel within digital marketing. Um, there's display, which is the ads you often see on like news sites to the, to the side or at the bottom of an article you read, or if you go to a blog, oftentimes they'll have dis what are called display ads around the content you're reading. Um, those ads often, those ads could either be general. So companies pay just to have ads on a, on a give or on a network of news sites or blogs. And sometimes they'll also be specific to uh, you as a user and sites you visited. So you'll get served ads depending on, uh, you know, what you visited before. Um, so that's display. I mentioned email, search, social media. Um, yeah, I would say those are the, the probably the, the, the key components of, of digital marketing. Um, and uh, as I kind of mentioned in the blog, you know, digital marketing is relatively young it hasn't been a long it hasn't been around sorry for that long um, and it's constantly changing and evolving there are new tools and and algorithms all the time and new platforms and this is true obviously of social media where like every week or so there a new social media channel pops up and and then you gotta stay on your toes with that stuff yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, but you also have to you have to stay on your toes. So you definitely need to be aware of what's going on and it it's not only new channels opening up but also for example Facebook every week or so there's some new development in terms of of their marketing platform. Um so uh, it's it's interesting because also in many of this in many of these cases and specifically in social media the, the channels that pop up or, you know, at least initially they're not intended or they don't start out as marketing channels. So Facebook didn't start out for marketing, right? It was just about people, um, interacting in some ways. Um, but it has become one of the biggest marketing channels in the world, um, in the past few years. And, you know, that's kind of the way the, the market works, right? People want to make money. And so, um, and so that's the way that Facebook makes money. Um, and I and I have to say, I just mentioned this because I think people will find it interesting. You know, um, oftentimes, you know, I mean, if you're on Facebook, right, you'll see ads. You'll see ads in your newsfeed. You might see ads to the right of your newsfeed. And I think 
most people have become used to it. That's just part of what Facebook is now. And I, I, you know, I don't, and sometimes I still see people writing on ads or kind of complaining, like, why am I seeing this? Why, you know, who put this ad in my newsfeed? I think, honestly, you just have to learn to accept that that's part of what Facebook is. And just like when you watch TV, you know that ads are just part of what you get. And if you don't want, you know, you can always switch the channel. You can turn the TV off. No one's actually forcing you to see the ad. So it's just part of what Facebook is right now. And there's, um, I can guarantee people there's no way that's going to change because this is how Facebook makes money. Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as free, right? Right. There really isn't. And yeah, that's a good, that's a good point too. When people think that something is free, it's never really free. Someone, someone is paying for it in some way. Yeah. So someone somehow is leveraging yeah. data or information um, to to profit. Oh yeah, for sure. Nowadays, and uh, you know, social media. I mentioned before, it has the marketing, it has the PR. Nowadays, social media for many companies, uh, ours included, is also a customer service channel. So you know, people can say good things or complain about. Um, the service they got from a company on social media and most companies, including Rosetta Stone, have people who are dedicated to responding to these comments, um, helping people out. And so uh, although I don't usually get involved in these things on a day-to-day basis, as someone who you know manages social media channels and does have kind of the authority, kind of the responsibility in a broader sense over some social media channels. I definitely monitor these things. I make sure things are answered. I sometimes answer questions myself if I have the time and I see that we're being overwhelmed by questions or comments. Um, But that's definitely another component of social media and why kind of, as I was mentioning at the beginning of uh, when I explained what marketing was nowadays, how digital marketing is changing all the time and and social media is such an important component of it and 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 like i'm saying it's changing partly because social media is so uh, so different and so, and changing itself all the time that it makes the whole field very dynamic and and constantly changing yeah customer service is one of the largest growing uh, use cases for social media right now yep yep it's definitely very important for someone who's interested in um, in working in social media, right? If you want to work in social media, you need to know who the key players are, and you need to be able to point to brands that you think do it really well. What are some of your favorite brands? Um, yeah, and then in terms of kind of brands or companies that you might want to follow. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, honestly, oftentimes. I find out about great things that are done on social media just through uh, these LinkedIn groups. So different brands have different, you know, there was the famous, uh, probably people have heard about it, uh, the famous Oreo tweet where during the Super Bowl, oh, yeah. When the light, yeah, when the lights went out, Oreo tweeted that you could still, uh, I guess, dunk your Oreo even though it was dark or something like that. And it got thousands of retweets and so on. And so, um, yeah, those kinds of stories, you can just learn about them through, you know, through uh, these LinkedIn groups or uh, these kinds of articles that people t- uh, write about all the time. And um, actually, I, I might want, I, while we're talking, I'll mention a cute example I have of my own that, com- that comes from Rosetta Stone and from me managing their Twitter account. And it didn't get as much 
notice as uh, the Oreo tweet, but I'm I'm kind of proud of it myself, so I might as well mention it. Um, during uh, so when The Bachelor was airing, the I think it was the last season. And to be honest, I don't watch The Bachelor, and so I don't even know it was. I think it was the last season. There was a guy from Venezuela um, competing, and his English was not, I guess, perfect. Um, and also, he wasn't. I don't know. He wasn't the most likable guy, I guess. Um, and I, I had noticed uh, over the course of you know this, the 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 program over the weeks that people were often ref- you know I so I would monitor our Twitter uh, account in terms of mentions of Rosetta Stone and people who are using the hashtag and and I do that on a kind of on a, almost on a daily basis just to see what people are saying and seeing if there are things that I could retweet and, and that's part of part of my job in addition to like doing advertising so um, I had noticed people were saying about him that he should just get Rosetta Stone he should learn English and and so on and and this was often mentioned um, and so I knew you know and this was interesting because maybe we could somehow get uh, get ourselves mentioned in that con I mean people were mentioning us anyway but maybe there was some way to leverage this and then on the night of the final episode um this uh Twitter account which actually has like I think around 400,000 followers uh this I don't know who it is actually it's some uh Twitter account called Princess Problems and who was obviously watching the episode she tweeted something like oh uh his name was Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo should just choose Rosetta Stone instead of, I think they were Nikki or Claire, um, something like that. And I, and I actually, I was following on Twitter and of course I noticed that many other people were mentioning Rosetta Stone in this context, kind of saying the same thing, but I noticed that she had said that and she, because she had so many followers, I knew that I should respond to her as Rosetta Stone and that that might get some attention. So I tweeted back saying, um, uh, who says we'll take him? Um, and I've, I used the hashtag The Bachelor and so on. And of course, it was noticed and it got um, uh, hundreds, I think something like 800 retweets, over a thousand favorites. And so that was definitely, um, uh, yeah, it was very, uh, people wrote on Twitter, you know, the, the social media guy for Rosetta Stone should get a raise or something like that. And and so, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, actually. And so, Finding those, I mean, honestly, that's not, uh, you know, a major component of my job and that's what, not what I do most hours of the day, but those little fun, uh, it actually, you know, kind of, it was really fun to, to get in there and, and get that acknowledgement that people thought that was, you know, cute. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic and very of the moment. I think it takes a certain kind of voice and, you know, a certain kind of humor to really be successful, kind of sassiness or attitude. There's a very right. specific tone and every you know every brand wants to define a voice that's consistent even if there are multiple people um who oh, are yeah. tweeting through any one account yeah you also have to be i mean one of the things i read about the most in in the media about social media you know in stories about social media is brands that got things wrong so yeah those make good be, stories yeah those make good stories and you have to be um, you know, you, you have to be before I tweeted that I, you know, I was very, I thought about it. I consulted people to make sure that it was okay. So you, even though sometimes things are kind of urgent and you have to get things, 
uh, very quickly onto social media, you also have to be very careful. Um, so for example, you know, brands oftentimes when they somehow get involved or mention things related to current events, it ends up being a big mess. So for example, on Rosetta Stone, I try, uh, or I, 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 do not mention anything related to current events to, you know, unless there's something exceptional that, that could merit, merit a mention. So, um, you know, one example of a brand doing thing, you know, getting into a, or doing, making a mistake by, so, uh, I think it was nine 11, uh, or the nine 11, you know, um, it was September 11th, uh, yeah, um, and AT&T posted a tweet with a picture of the Twin Towers and one of their phones, like, near the, t- or showing the Twin Towers or something like that, and that came across as kind of very uh, crude, maybe, and kind of, you know, insensitive, trying to uh, incorporate your brand into something that's very emotional for people in, in a way that they don't want to see a company associated with it. So, you, you know, you have to be very careful with those things. These stories are always so interesting to me because they speak to all at once how far social media has come and, and how far and, and, and how young it still is. So many brands were very slow to adopt social media because Every single tweet or every single post had to be read and approved by legal, public affairs, sometimes mm. investor relations, you yes. know, and it would take a week or two to approve a single tweet, and obviously that's not how social media works. Um, so the, the leaders in the field were some of the first to create standard policies and legal policies around what could be said and what couldn't and what's expected, and, you know, the brands that flourished in the beginning were the brands that gave more and more leeway to their employees to tweet freely, if you will. Yes. Uh, but then it's that same liberty that is often, you know, it's that same liberty that is, is these learning moments, right, these, these little course corrections as we move along as a social media, as a, as a professional, um, as a professional industry, right, as it matures. Yes. These so, are the learning moments. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's a very interesting uh, time to be in social media. And, you know, in, in, in my case, I can say uh, we as a company, there's a social media policy in place. But, of course, um, the company basically trusts me and the other people on social media to create appropriate social media posts. We are not uh, – it's not like someone monitors and checks every single post we – we put out, they trust us and we have, you know, we basically have proven ourselves to be trustworthy. We know uh, what to put out there. Um, And we don't, you know, one mistake that is often made by companies and there have been interesting examples of, of this is giving the keys to social media to either too many people or to people who are kind of like, for example, to interns or people who really don't know enough about the company and so that's not the case for, for us. We, we have, empo- you know, permanent employees who do social media, not too many of them. And those are the only ones who get to, uh, to write or respond to anything on, on social media. Yeah, that's great. I think social media is one of those organizations inside a company. It's, it's, that is the challenges. Um, I think academics who are making a transition don't, realize that many of the same challenges they face as transitioning academics 
are at a conceptual level faced inside organizations when skill sets and value add or you know the ROI is abstract or, or uh, can't be easily quantified, which in many cases is the case with social media, not always um, when you're dealing with ad dollars and product revenue and you can make a direct correlation. That's different, obviously, but... Yeah. Um, no. You know, Social yeah. media has to prove itself internally as a value add to the company. That's yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and and I would say um, it's true that nowadays, especially as time goes on, social media does have a growing, you know, dollar sign associated with it. So there is nowadays, you know, if you're doing Facebook or Twitter advertising, you can pr- at least partially prove your worth. Uh, in those terms, which which is the easiest way to do it uh, for uh, for a marketing team and for a company in general, because you know if you're going to your CEO, the easiest way to show that it's worth keeping you uh, keeping your job or is is by showing, oh look, we made X amount of money this year. But even with that, you know, with that being said. Um, there's still social media still has a lot of components that aren't uh, measurable in that way. So the customer service component or just have social aware, you know, kind of brand awareness and engagement and all these other things, because as I was saying before, it's not only constantly changing, it's also kind of, it kind of connects to so many other uh, things that it's, it's really, it, it encompasses so much and so much more honestly than other uh, digital channels than things. It's it's much more all encompassing than than like email or search or display ads because it's a lot more. You know, it 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 involves or it includes all these other things. And also, I would just to add because you know, given who our listeners might be, I think because of its nature, social media is actually a relatively or an easier field to get into than many others in marketing and, and maybe even more generally because it's so young, because it's changing so much, it's, it's easier for you as an individual to volunteer and do it for an organization. So you have that experience or to learn the tools yourself because also they're not super difficult to learn. So, you know, I think that's definitely a good um, direction that people, at least if they're interested, uh, it, that people who have a PhD and 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 want to look for a non-academic career, it's definitely a direction they should they should look in. That is such a good point. When you're looking to make a transition, finding a field that's new and young, especially as an expert learner, that's a field that you can become expert in. You will have the same knowledge base as everyone else in the space. Exactly. And very quickly. So all of the issues around what's your experience, as long as you can demonstrate knowledge and qualifiable skills, right, you become an equally viable player, right? The playing field is much, it's an equal play. Well, yeah. never an equal I, playing I, I field, mean, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's... It could be close to equal, especially if, as I, as I said before, if you gain at least some experience let's say by volunteering, if you can't find a paid position, that's also very helpful. And, and yeah, and like you say, exactly, it's new, it's dynamic, it's easy to get into. Um, of course, it also means that there's generally a lot of competition within the field because, you know, every 
a 22-year-old college graduate might want to get into it as well because they also recognize that it might be easy to get into, get into. But at the same time, as someone with your learning experience and your skills, you could definitely stand out. Definitely. This has been a great conversation, Avi. Thank you. Thanks for giving us more insight into the breadth of social and all its many components. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed talking about it, and I and I do and I enjoy doing it. So I'm so that's probably part of the reason I I like talking about it. And you know, if anyone has uh, additional questions, happy to answer them. If you want to just write on the blog or reach out to PhDs at work, and um, you know, there's a lot more to say, and and I could and so you know, feel free to do so. Thanks again to Avi for joining us and thanks to you. Thanks for tuning in and listening and being a member of our network. Next up on the podcast will be Adam Capitano. We'll be talking about his most recent one year later post. As a reminder, Adam works in academic publishing. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, the, the most important part of a network is the people in it. And that is you. All right, folks, thanks again. And we'll see you here next time.